Welcome to Tech Now with Tom Lyon, the podcast where host Tom Lyon talks with industry leaders about upcoming technology. Now here's Tom. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Tech Now with Tom Lyon. I'm Tom Lyon, your host. With us today is Jonathan Ellis, who's CTO and co-founder at Datastax. How are you today, Jonathan? I'm doing well, thanks, Tom. Uh, appreciate you having me on the program. Appreciate you coming. So you've been involved uh, with the Cassandra database for a long time now, if, if I understand correctly. That's uh, right. We're, we're just celebrating our 10-year anniversary this year. Wow. And of course, it seems to be the, the, the dominant NoSQL database these days. Can, can you talk a little bit about the history of Cassandra and how you got involved? Yeah, so uh, Facebook open-sourced Cassandra 10 years ago this summer, and I got involved a couple months later when Rackspace hired me with a mission to build them a scalable database for their internal systems. So what what I the way I came to this problem domain was before Rackspace, I'd built an object store, so similar to Amazon's S3, at a backup uh, provider called Mosey. And so this, this object score store scaled to petabytes worth of data, but what we, uh, you know, this, the challenge we ran into was we needed to correlate, you know, which users owned which files and we were doing single instance storage. So you could have a single copy of a file, but multiple users, uh, had a, you know, had, you know, ownership of it. So there was a problem of garbage collection where if one user deleted a file, how did you know if he was the last user who owned that file or if there were other users that still owned it, in which case you needed to keep a copy around? Yeah. So you know, that's, this is a trivial problem if you have a database, but there weren't any databases that scaled to millions of users and billions of files. And yeah, so, as one one thing I've learned is that for all for all of these distributed uh, data systems, it's always the metadata that kills you. Yeah. So this was circa 2005, and I realized that as you know, people started creating you know software as a service or you know just cloud applications in general, that this was going to be a problem that essentially everybody was going to have to deal with. Uh, you know, if they got traction. And so, like I said, Rackspace recognized this as well based on their internal uh, use cases and brought me on to uh, to solve the problem. And so I got to evaluate the systems that were around then, which included some that are still around today. You've got MongoDB, you've got HBase, uh, and a couple more that have kind of uh, fallen by the wayside, like uh, Riak and Voldemort. But what I really liked about Cassandra was it had this combination of uh, a masterless distributed system, uh, which really simplifies the fault tolerance properties uh, and with a data model uh, that gives you a lot more power than, than the lowest level of key, key value. Uh, so I really liked that combination and uh, put my weight behind Cassandra. Uh, so just to fill in a little bit more of the history, uh, a, a couple months after I started working on it, Facebook formally contributed it to the Apache Software Foundation. And when when Cassandra graduated from the Apache Incubator a year later, I became the first project chair. And you uh, you remained the project chair for what, eight years or something? Yeah, about about six years, yeah. I guess you did quite a good job making it grow because it sure seems to be everywhere. 
Thank you. Yeah, I think we I think we made the right call in terms of focusing on the enterprise market uh, more than the the hacker market. Uh, so, you know, to the degree that that you know, of course, when you think about NoSQL, you generally you said you think about Cassandra. The other one you you think about, of course, is MongoDB, and that's kind of the split I see between the two. Is is Cassandra's more focused on I need to handle you know, dozens to hundreds of nodes and terabytes of to petabytes of data. And MongoDB is much more about, you know, how do I make it easy to explore this new domain, but not necessarily as good at, at scaling up uh, to, to solve that in production. Right. <clears throat> yeah, I guess I left out MongoDB because they were pretty late to the, the clustering capability, right? I mean, they were everywhere before before they started distributing the database. Well, yeah, I mean, technically they were distributing pretty early on. It just didn't work very well. Okay, maybe that's it. <laughs> that's the distinction there, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. can you talk a little bit about the consistency model in Cassandra? Because I know that's one thing that sets it apart from a lot of other NoSQL databases is your kind of a choice of levels of consistency. Yeah, so early, I, man, I forget the year. I, th- I, w- I want to say about 10 to 15 years ago, Eric Brewer posited a theorem called the CAP theorem that says that a distributed system can be any two of consistent, available, and partition tolerant. And so you you can look at it as saying as, if you lived in in a magical world where networks never fail, then you can have a system that's both available and consistent. But since you don't live in that world, then you need to look at you need to choose which one you're going to be. So one way of looking at that is, you know, suppose you have a, a network of five computers and it gets split down the middle. You've got two computers on one side of the partition and three on the other. Then you need to pick. You you know you can say, if I'm talking to uh, one of the servers on the two computer side of the partition, that server can either give you its last known answer in which case it's choosing availability, or it can say, I refuse to answer this because I'm in a minority partition and you need to wait until I can form a majority. And and that's choosing consistency. It's saying stuff may be happening on that majority side that I don't know about. Therefore, I'm going to refuse the temptation to guess. I'm going to wait until I can give you an authoritative answer. And so Cassandra is unusual in that it optimizes for availability over consistency. And I say optimizes for because we do have a construct that we call lightweight transactions built on Paxos consensus uh, that will let you opt into uh, a consistency first world. But I'm pretty firmly convinced that availability is the right choice 90 plus percent of the time. And so that's that's what we optimize for. And that's that's what the default is. Yeah, and it, and it seems to me the possibility of having loose consistency is also what makes it feasible to work in truly distributed situations where a single database spans multiple yes. data centers. Yeah, that was something that we were way ahead of the market on. Uh, and I remember, you know, our, it was actually interesting because our we did our A round of funding in 2010. And by the way, I was, you know, as a first time founder, learned a lot of things the hard way. One of the things I learned the hard way was 
two and a half million dollars is not enough to build an enterprise database with. So that was the amount that we raised with our Series A. And what happened was, so we did our Series A, we were kind of the hot new technology at the time. Uh, so there was, there was actually some competition from the venture capitalists, like who's gonna get to, to lead the round. Uh, but then a, a year later, we were you know, running out of that initial Series A and, and raising a Series B. And everyone's like, yeah, okay, that's cool that you've got this vision for uh, you know, this scalable database thing, but who's gonna need it? Like Facebook, uh, you know, they, they built it, you know, they're good. Google, they well, they've got Bigtable. You know, Amazon, they've got Dynamo. You know, who's who else is going to need something like this? And so there was a, a lot of skepticism from the investors that this was actually something, that this was more than a cool technology, but actually something solving a real problem. Uh, and in particular, the fact that, as you said, building with an availability first model, an AP model, means that it's significantly easier for us to span multiple data centers or you know a hybrid cloud model today, but that wasn't something that uh, the market was thinking about then. If anything, they were thinking of uh, a failover model where I'll have maybe I'll have a standby database that I can follow fail over to if my active data center dies. But I'm definitely not thinking active active. Uh, but here we are, 2018, and and the market's caught up to uh, to Cassandra. All right. Remember going to a Cassandra meetup that uh, Netflix hosted a few years mm -hmm. ago, and they're I guess they're probably still huge users of Cassandra, but it seemed like they were using it everywhere and and particularly leveraging the capability of of you know things still working when a whole region goes down kind of thing. Yeah, they were a really early adopter, and they they started kicking the tires before we hit 1.0, and then. They really uh, got into it in a big way after 1.0. Yeah, super interesting use case. It's really interesting to see how cautious they are, uh, where they have uh, Cassandra replicated to three different availability zones. Uh, sorry, I, I misspoke. Three different regions in, uh, in Amazon, so that even if there's uh, an outage that affects multiple availability zones in a single region, which Amazon has had some of those outages, uh, Netflix uh, doesn't go down. And then they've got defense in depth where they, they save their snapshots out to, to S3 in case they need to do, uh, mostly in case you know, an intern hits you know, the equivalent of delete from users and they need to restore from, uh, from backup. Uh, but it's really interesting to see that defense in depth that they've got layered in there. Yeah, just interns are good to have around, so you can blame things on them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sure they have stringent, you know, protocols to prevent that from happening. But you know, you, you got to have that safety net just in case. Let's talk a little about data stacks and the business. Uh, they seem to be doing really well, and and I, I also went to, I forget the name of the event, but data stacks hosted an event a few years ago, and boy, it seemed like all the users loved them. So uh, congratulations on, on, on that as well. Thank you. So what's, what's, maybe you can talk a little bit about how the Datastax product diverges from, from just the open source Cassandra. Yeah, so we, we ship a product called Datastax Enterprise. And Datastax Enterprise, is, it, it's evolved a little bit, actually. So the, the very first version 
uh, included, uh, basically bundled Hadoop with Cassandra and you know rewired Hadoop so it didn't need HDFS and Zookeeper and so forth. So you could do analytics against your Cassandra data. Uh, that analytics piece has since been replaced with Spark, so it's, it's Spark-based now. And then we added search based on Apache Solar and along the way wired in a whole bunch of uh, enterprise security features. You've got Kerberos support, you've got row-based uh, authorization. And so it was kind of this open core model where we took Apache Cassandra and we added this stuff to it. Uh-huh. What we found was that I, I would say that what what we found was that the the core was actually the most compelling piece, uh, and so what what we wanted to do what we switched to uh, in 2016 was a model where not only are we adding stuff around the core but we're enhancing the core as well. And so earlier this year we released uh, DSE version six, which includes two. Uh, it includes a bunch of stuff, but the two key features that are enhancements to the core are uh, node sync and advanced performance. Uh, and to explain what, what those two are, I'll need to back up just a little bit. Okay. Because we talked about how Cassandra is an AP system. And one of the things that means is because I, by default, unless I tell it not to, by default, any node in the cluster that I talk to will give me its best answer. And it will also accept updates and reconcile those asynchronously with other updates that are happening in the system. So in theory, I could have two uh, clients updating the same user record concurrently. And so one of what, what could happen then is if one of those nodes that accepts one of those updates goes down before it's had a chance to propagate those to the rest of the cluster, then I, I have a, a situation where you know this this update has partially propagated and it's not it's not completely uh, some of the nodes think that that uh, you know the billing system or the billing cycle is set at X, but some of the nodes think that it's at Y. And right. so I need to have a way to reconcile those even if one of the nodes involved goes down and never comes back. And so there's this, this concept called repair, which is a terrible name because people think repair means, well, something broke that you need to fix. And repair is actually saying that, hey, no, this is, this is a, a part of distributed systems that nodes die. And so I'm going to go and make sure that everyone is still in sync even when that happens. And so it's a fairly heavyweight process that involves building uh, Merkle trees of each of the replicas and exchanging those trees and figuring out where the differences are and exchanging data to to get everyone agreeing on what the what the state should be. And so what we okay. did for DSE six is we replaced this repair that has to be manually scheduled and managed with a feature called Node Sync. And and what it does is in the background. It's just constantly scanning through each of the replicas and comparing them so that you never have to worry about that uh, as a operational procedure. The database just takes care of it for you. Okay. And then the, the other big piece is sometimes we're, we're creative at names, and I think NodeSync was a pretty good one. Advanced performance is, a, is definitely less creative, but it's descriptive. 
And and what we did was uh, we we took the core engine of Cassandra and took it from a SATA architecture, a staged event-driven architecture, to a thread-per-core architecture. And what that gave us was effectively doubling throughput and uh, and having uh, latency for, for point queries. So we're pretty proud of that. And this is an example of uh, the a good good uh, result of competition because I understand the the Scylla DB guys were making a lot of noise about Cassandra performance. So then you guys have improved it a lot, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You could say that. I've, I would like the record to show that that I opened a thread per core ticket for Apache Cassandra uh, years before Scylla started doing anything there. But but yes, there's been some uh, some leapfrogging going there. Okay, so maybe maybe that's where they got the idea. Yeah, who knows? <laughs> Could be. And then uh, there's also graph capabilities in DSE. That's right. We acquired a graph company called Aurelius in I'm going to say 2015. I'm pretty sure it was 2015. And then so basically they had a product called Titan, uh, which had pluggable storage backends, one of which was Cassandra. And we said, hey, Aurelius, wouldn't it be interesting? Because when you've got pluggable backends, that means that there's some lowest common denominator that your engine has to work with. And we said, no, wouldn't wouldn't it be interesting to kind of free you from these lowest common denominator shackles and let you take full advantage of Cassandra? And what would it look like if you re-architected with that assumption instead? Uh, and so that became DSE Graph as kind of a kind of in, in you know conceptually it's basically Titan 2.0. Interesting, and that's like a completely different API at the application level, but all ties into Cassandra underneath. Yeah, right. Yeah, uh, yes. So the short answer is yes. It, it uses the the Gremlin API and the Tinkerpop toolkit, which are standard. Uh, it's roughly the equivalent of SQL for the graph world. It's a standard uh, interface that the different graph databases can can speak. But one of the things that's on the horizon for us is we are unifying uh, the Cassandra world and the graph world so that there can be significantly more operability. And by and what I mean by that is you will be able to take. Uh, a table of users in, from the Cassandra world and just start adding edges uh, from the users to the uh, catalog of, of items representing purchases. You can just add purchasing edges uh, in the graph world and then be able to query those edges from the Cassandra world uh, should you want to. So that's that's something that we're actively working on uh, and I'll be able to talk more about it when we're closer to to having something ready. Is that something uh, happening in Datastacks or or in the Apache committee? It, it's pri so the since Graph uses Cassandra as the storage layer layer, it's primarily how we uh, teach Graph to to deal with that. So it's more at the Graph side than the there's. The only change that we'll need at the Cassandra side is how do we tell Cassandra to recognize that you know this table here is a set of graph properties and here's what that means you can do with it. So coming back to what you said, the metadata is always the, the interesting problem. What's the most uh, unusual 
use of Cassandra that you've come across? What 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 has kind of blown you away? Uh, you know, there's I I would probably say there was a, a an engineer who gave a talk a couple years ago. I'm I'm gonna see if I can Google it really quickly. So that's my keyboard you hear in the background. Uh, he gave a talk called, I thought it was Cassandra for small data, and I didn't find it with my quick Google, but uh, he gave a talk at one of the Cassandra summits about this. And basically what he was saying was, everyone thinks about Cassandra is for these, these really large footprints. And I'm using Cassandra, even though I, I only have, you know, I think he had a few hundred gigabytes of data, so it fits uh, easily on a single machine. And he said, but I'm using Cassandra because I need that replication to multiple data centers. And I really need to make sure that this half a terabyte of data that I have is always available and never offline. Uh, and, and Cassandra was the best tool he found for solving that problem. So I thought that was interesting that even independent of the scale piece, you know, the distribution and the uh, availability design was was interesting for him. Yeah, it's that's one truism is that it almost everyone thinks they have a big data problem, but everyone's you know, data sizes are all very different. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, no one else, people rarely admit to having a small data problem. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. That's, that's true. It's it's definitely a lot sexier to to work to be a big data scientist than a small data scientist. Right. <laughs> and then uh, if you're doing stuff like graph, then even what seems like a small amount of data. Uh, to some people can can be terribly huge to deal with. Yeah, I haven't I haven't done any solid research into this, so this is just off the top of my head. But I I suspect that one of the reasons that graph hasn't really taken off, despite being this really interesting paradigm for modeling complex relationships, is that you know the graph databases largely came out of the academic world where you know, scale was kind of an afterthought. And so you've had these graph databases that don't scale past a single machine and and maybe you can replicate off to to a, a slave, but you can't you can't actually partition your data across multiple machines. And to be fair, you know, let me don't get me wrong, graph partitioning is a notoriously hard problem in computer science. And I'm definitely right. not saying that that uh, it's a solved problem now. But it turns out that that even with you know pretty good partitioning and not perfect partitioning, you know being able to scale your graph across a cluster is is really compelling and unlocks a, a lot of use cases that just aren't possible uh, without that kind of scale. Yeah, I think another part of the problem is there's so many users for whom if they think they need a database, then then they jump immediately to relations and SQL and all that stuff. That's true, uh -huh. and and I, and I think that's again a uh, product of our education system, where if you're going to study databases in school, it's that may, it's changing a little bit, but until very recently, it's always been relational that, that you've been studying. Yeah, my my son is actually working in bioinformatics, doing DNA matching type stuff, mm -hmm. and unfortunately, you know, the, that group chose a relational, and they're trying to wedge all these DNA structures into tables and it just makes no sense at all so yeah he's, he's trying to liberate all that and get to a graph database but yes yeah that's a that's a field i don't know a whole lot about but my understanding is that that's another problem that doesn't fit too well in the relational model right 
Yeah, so he thinks graph is the way to go, but he has to convince a whole community of people to try to move that direction. So what else is happening in your life? Well, that's a that's a really broad question, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> let's let's narrow that down to uh, databases. I think. <laughs> uh, so I get I gave a talk recently at the Austin uh, da- Data Day Texas, uh, organized by by a gentleman from Austin named Lynn Bender, and it's actually he's been doing it for several years, and I think this year. They broke a thousand attendees, which, for you know, a, a regional conference is is extremely respectable. Yeah. Uh, so, so I I gave this talk uh, at Data Day Texas. I'm going to be reprising it at Strata next month. And the basically what I did was I looked at uh, the feature set of Apache Cassandra and I compared it with kind of this. Uh, you know, these databases as a service that you see from cloud vendors, from uh, Amazon and from Microsoft and from Google. And I won't spoil it to you, for you. Uh, come and see my talk at Strata. But the, the very short version is that I would not deploy an application on DynamoDB or Spanner. Uh, I do think that Cosmos has a very credible story to tell and, and their, you know, solid competition for Cassandra. But for, but from my analysis, the short list really comes down to Cosmos DB and Cassandra, and the others are not. They're just not as as good of an option. I'm I'm not familiar with Cosmos. Where where's that from? So that's from from Microsoft in their Azure cloud service, okay. and it's actually they they launched a service called Document DB. I think that was in 2014. And then last year they launched Cosmos DB as a kind of document DB 2.0, and uh, and they really got a lot lot of uh, a buzz around around the relaunch. So you know I'm a veteran of a name change that caused a lot of confusion in the market. Uh, Datastax was born a company called Riptano, and so when we changed our name to Datastax a year later, it caused a lot of confusion, and we were going around telling people that. You know, we were you know we we were commercializing Cassandra, and they said, "I thought this company called Riptano was doing it." And yeah. so um, that was not a I would say it wasn't a great move in in hindsight. But the rebrand of DocumentDB to CosmosDB worked fantastically for Microsoft, as near as I can tell. Jonathan, what what day is your talk at Strata? So my talk is on Thursday on the thirteenth. Okay, and you guys have a booth there as well, I, I assume. We do, yes. We'd love to see anyone who wants to come by. Okay, yeah. Well, I think uh, it's coming up fast, so I encourage all our listeners to drop by the Datastax booth and drop by the DriveScale booth and see what we can do together. Fantastic. We'll see you there. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Tech Now with Tom Lyon. We welcome your feedback. And tell your friends to tune in. 